we're in this conversation, long story short, and here's what we've said. Let us get caught up to speed because there's a lot of places we got to go today if we're going to cover that much territory. We said that everybody has a long story short. No matter what you believe about the Bible, no matter if you believe it's true, don't believe it's true, not sure, skeptical, everybody has a long story short. All of us came in here with one. We love stories. Most of us, if not all of us, love stories. I think it's hardwired into us, quite frankly, but we all have a long story short. You're saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. All of us have a story through which we look at all that is existence, and we make sense of all that is through the lens of that story. All of us, even if you don't believe the Bible, you have a long story short. You believe we came from somewhere, you believe we're going somewhere, and whatever that story is, that's how you make sense of the middle. It's your long story short. So for these six weeks, all we're doing is saying this, hey, let's look at the long story short of the Bible. We teach the Bible, we preach the Bible, and we're doing that for two reasons. First, this shouldn't surprise you, it won't surprise you. We're looking at the long story short of the Bible because we believe and the Bible claims that it is the true story of God, mankind, and human existence. That the Bible claims to be the true story of how we got here, where we're going, and how we make sense of the middle. And you expected me to say that, right? That shouldn't surprise you in church, but I want you to hear what I'm going to say now. The Bible doesn't claim to just be the true story. It claims to be a better story. And so if you're here and you're like, I don't believe in the Bible, but I have a long story short, all I want you to do for these six weeks is say, hey, I want to look at my long story short. I want to consider the long story short of the Bible because it claims to be a true story and it claims to be the better story. And so we've been looking at this long story short. Now, here's what I know. Some of you love reading the Bible. Some of you grew up studying the Bible. Some of you know stories about the Bible. And so here's what we said to you. If your long story short is the Bible, that if you grew up studying the Bible, knowing the Bible, you got your favorite verse, you got your favorite Bible story, that sometimes if we don't look at the Bible against the backdrop of the long story short, that knowing, reading, and getting our favorite verses in the Bible can be a lot like getting random puzzle pieces and never knowing what the picture is we're putting together is. And so all we're doing in long story short is saying, hey, what if we looked at the picture on the box? So that as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible, as we learn the cool stories in the Bible, we can say, hey, boom, oh, that's how that fits together. And so we're taking a look at the long story short of the Bible in six weeks. Week one, we simply said the the way the whole story begins is this act one called creation. That literally, if you were here, we said the God who has no beginning, I'm going to say that again, I want you to hear me. The God of the Bible has no beginning, he shows up in the beginning. The God who has no beginning shows up in the beginning, and we talked about the fact that this God is eternal, this God is sovereign, he's powerful, he's orderly, he's good. And so God in the beginning creates, it's good. That's it in a nutshell. God creates, it's good, it's beautiful. It it somehow is integrated. It makes sense. He has a plan. God creates this incredible creation. It's bigger than we imagined. It's more beautiful than we ever dreamed. And we said at the climax of that story, he is a personal God. Don't miss this. He's a personal God. And he creates man in his image because he wants to have a relationship with that man. He creates man out of his love, not his loneliness. And he says to that man, I want to have a relationship with you. You're made in my image. It's only when I get a sense of act one, stay with me, 
that I'll understand my place in the world, that I'll understand my purpose in the world, and that I'll understand what is the priority. My place in the world is I've been created in the image of God. I'm to reflect his glory to the world. My purpose is that God said, I want you to go multiply. Our purpose is to multiply God's goodness in the world. And our priority is to enjoy relationship with God and with others. That sounds like a pretty good world. Can I get an amen on that? Like that's the world we dream of. That's the world we hope for. Can I just say it this way? That's the world we long for. That's the world we hoped for. That's not quite the world we live in, is it? Like you look around and you're like, something happened. And and, and the picture of act one isn't quite what I'm experiencing in reality. It's kind of like Airbnb. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, Airbnb. Put your hand down. How many of you ever stayed at Airbnb, right? Like that's awesome, right? Airbnb, you're like, what's Airbnb? It's like you can go rent somebody's house at a fraction of the cost of staying in a hotel, right? And like, like they came out with these awesome commercials when it first was, was coming out. And these commercials are brilliant and they're awesome and they draw you in. In fact, they're so brilliant, I wanted you to see the very first one. Here's how it went. Isn't that cool? Anything with a baby's good. Is mankind? Are we good? Go see. Go look through their windows so you can understand their views. Sit at their tables so you can share their tastes. Sleep in their beds so you may know their dreams. Go see and find out just how kind the he's and she's of this mankind are. just say, oh, like I want to go rent an Airbnb right now, right? Like I want to look out that kid's window. I want to walk on that kid's floor, right? I mean, that commercial kind of draws you in. It's like, wow, that's awesome. It is so awesome that about a week ago, we had a few days and we're going to go down and see my son, Aaron, in Virginia. My daughter was home. She had some time off work. And so my wife said, I'm going to find us a place to stay. I said, Airbnb. There might be a baby there somewhere, right? Airbnb, we're going to go, right? She starts looking. And if you've ever looked on the website, it's like awesome, right? And they give you all these choices, and we found one. It's incredible. It's this little 70s cottage, right? We're going to stay at Airbnb. It's like they give us all these pictures. It looked like the coolest place you could ever imagine. And so we're going to stay, and the price was right. And we began looking through all the pictures, and like, man, this kind of cool backyard and has an incredible front porch. And you walk through, and like, wow, they have this awesome living room, three bedrooms. It's like washer and dryer. It's like awesome. Let's do it. Let's book it. We booked it. The time came to go. I stuck the address in my navigation, and we start off to see my son. Can't wait. We're going to stay at Airbnb, right? It's 70s cottage, right? It's going to be awesome. We began driving and we got about a mile away from the town. And I had never driven through streets that were so cluttered with trash. Like there was trash and like people weren't just putting their garbage out. Like there was trash and litter everywhere. And I'm driving like, Lord, we're going to come out of this soon. I know we are, right? 
And my navigation says, turn on 4th Street. I'm like, please let us drive out of this. Turn on 17th. Turn on, I keep driving. There's more trash, more trash, run down houses. I'm like, please, Lord. And then the little navigation said, you've arrived at your destination. <laughs> and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I look to the right and there's a house that kind of resembled the one we saw on the website, right? I'm like, no big deal, guys, we can do this, right? Or Gregory, right, we'll tough this out. I'm sure inside it looks great. It looks awesome on the inside. So we go up, punch in the code, because that's what you do at Airbnb, right? Punch in the code, and the very first thing I saw was the doors weren't painted in the place. They didn't have that on the pictures. They never took a picture of the doors. I said, no big deal. We can stay at a place where there's trash everywhere, the doors aren't painted. I just need a bathroom right now. It took us seven hours to get down here. So I went to the bathroom, and after I got done using the bathroom, I'm like, wow, okay, we're in the bathroom, it's awesome. I flushed the toilet. Toilet didn't flush. All of a sudden, I'm at Airbnb, I'm plunging the toilet, I'm looking at the doors that aren't painted. I look down under the sink, and there's ants coming out from everywhere. I'm like, wow, that wasn't on the picture. I said, no big deal. I'm glad we got three beds in here. Aaron's gonna come stay with us. I began looking for the third bed. I couldn't find the third bed. We called the guy who owned the house. He said, the third bed is that red couch in the corner. Oh, you mean this couch? The one that my five foot two daughter, her legs hang over the end. That's the third bed? All of a sudden, it didn't look like the website. Little by little, I began to realize the dryer didn't work. All of a sudden, I began to realize the backyard didn't look like the backyard. And when I went to take a shower, that bar of soap had hair on it, and I knew it wasn't mine. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Anybody ever been Airbnb? <laughs> you see, when you look at God's picture of creation, it doesn't take you long to say, oh, man, that doesn't look like what I'm experiencing. And that's why we need a Pastor Aiden to tell us about the curse. Because God gave us this beautiful picture, this beautiful story, and this long story short is simply this, is that man has a propensity to mess things up, and that man sinned, and now all men are sinners, and the fruit of us being sinners is our sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's important. We sin because we're sinners. The problem isn't out there. Everybody else, the problem is in here, and now instead of man walking with God like he did, man is now hiding from God. Now instead of man enjoying relationship with others, man is blaming others and now man is in this cosmic game of hide and seek with God. And where's God? God is chasing, he's calling, he's pursuing, he shows up in the garden, he says, hey Adam, where are you? It's fascinating when you begin to read the story as it begins to unwrap because you have your fingers in Genesis 4 and you don't have to read long, stay with me, to realize that it went from bad, that's bad, to worse. That if you read the long story short, all of a sudden in Genesis 4, you realize this first family, they have some kids and their oldest son at church. Did I say that? At church, instead of multiplying God's goodness, enjoying a relationship with God and with others, he allows jealousy and anger to take over. And by Genesis 4, we see Cain murdering Abel. You read a little further and you realize that it doesn't take long to see this story go from bad to worse because when you get to Genesis chapter six, instead of man multiplying God's goodness throughout the world, it says that literally man multiplied his wickedness in the world. And God says, I gotta hit the reset button. And he sends this flood and he saves this family. 
Noah and the ark. And certainly after the rainbow in the sky and all of that part of the story that some of you have heard of and some of you have in nurseries that you've made and all that kind of stuff, certainly everything gets right until you get to Genesis 11 and you realize that man, instead of reflecting God's glory, instead of making his name great, is now bent on making man's name great. And he tries to build this tower such that God scatters man throughout the globe. What God created to be integrated is now disintegrated. What he created to be beautiful is now broken. The relationship is ruined. The curse has led to corruption. It begs the question, how in the world now will God deal with that? What will God do? How will he deal with his creation that has now been impacted by this corruption? That's where Pastor Aiden left us because we have a God that's calling in the garden. And I love this quote. If God really wanted to get rid of us, the chances are that God wouldn't keep hounding us every step of the way ever since. That somehow the story of the Old Testament that you have in your fingers from Genesis to Malachi, I need you to stay with me today because I want it to pop. Somehow that story that's weird to you, that's bizarre to you, that gets so complicated to understand is about a God who is the hound of heaven chasing us. He's pursuing us. He is promising. He wants to restore and redeem his creation. And so act one is creation, act two is the curse, which leads to act three, and I want you to write this word down. It is the word covenant. That if you wanna understand the story, the long story short of the Bible, you gotta understand something about covenant. Now, can we just make sense of this for a second and then we gotta fly? We don't really have a modern way of explaining this covenant. We're not really that good at it. Like, we don't understand relationships as it pertains to covenant. We don't use those terms much. We understand consumer relationships. Consumer relationships are I'll pay for goods, you give me what I pay for. Or we understand contractual relationships. I'll keep my end of the bargain if you keep your end of the bargain, right? So we don't really understand covenant, but a covenant is different than a consumer relationship and it's different than a contractual relationship. Here's what a covenant is. It's an intricate blend of love and law. Here's the way Tim Keller says it. He says it better than I could, so I thought I'd put it up here. A covenant relationship means this. The relationship is more loving and intimate than simply a legal relationship. Yet it's more binding, enduring, and accountable than a merely personal relationship. It is a personal relationship that is made more loving and more intimate because it is legal through voluntary, mutual, and binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances. Let me put it this way. Everybody look here a second. A consumer or a contractual relationship says this, I will be what I should be if you are what you should be. That's what a contract says. A contract says, I will be what I should be to the degree that you are what you should be. We can throw that on the slide, Mitchell. There we go. A covenant is different than a contract. 
A covenant is different than a consumer relationship. A covenant says this, I will be what I should be whether you are what you should be or not. He's saying, Dan, why is this important? Everybody look here, because if you one day ask me to marry you or one of our pastors, when the Bible talks about marriage, it talks about it in covenant language. He's saying, Dan, is today that important? You better believe it is. If you're married in the room, If you're married in the room, when the Bible talks about marriage, it talks about it in terms of covenant. You're saying, why is that important? Because not only does it use covenant to talk about marriage, but when the Bible talks about how God relates to his people, the primary term that it uses is covenant. It uses this word covenant that God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a God who wants to restore, redeem, and reconcile through a covenant relationship. And so that makes the rest of the Old Testament make sense to you. In fact, I'm going to show you in 20 minutes or less exactly how that happens. Because you have your Bibles open, and Genesis 12 is where it begins And God begins this covenant-pursuing, chasing relationship with a guy named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, here's what he says to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Everybody look here a second. We just came out of act two, which is all about the curse. And in Genesis 12, we see God saying to a man, he says, I wanna bless you. And I wanna bless you and I want everybody that you come into contact with to be blessed by you. And in fact, Abraham I'm gonna bless the entire planet through you. Here's what, listen, you gotta get, this is so, like drum roll, like God comes out of the curse and he says, I want you to know something. It is my desire to reverse the curse. Like I wanna reverse the curse. I wanna bless you. I want you to be a blessing. And through you, Abraham, I'm gonna bless everyone. In fact, you can write it down this way. God picks a person who happens to be Abraham to bless so that through him, Abraham and his seed and his family, he can bless all people. Now, now here's the deal, okay? God makes a covenant with Abraham. I'm gonna take you somewhere that, that maybe some of you read over. If you read the Old Testament, if you've never read this before, I'm gonna just give you a warning. It's bizarre, it's, it, it's kind of weird, okay? Just shake your head if you're with me. You with me? It's gonna be weird, okay? You ever, anybody ever read some of the Old Testament? It's like, that's weird. Raise your hand if you ever read part of that, yeah? Okay, we're gonna go to a passage that's a little bit weird because a few chapters over, God makes this covenant with Abraham. You have to see it because at the end of my talk with you, it's gonna pop. But you gotta stay with me. I drew the short straw, teach the Old Testament in 20 minutes or less, right? But we're gonna do it. Genesis 15, I want you to see it with me. Verse five, God takes Abraham outside and he says to Abraham, look up at the sky and count the stars, if if indeed you can count them. 
Abraham can't count them. You can't count them. But then he says to Abraham, as many as those stars are, so shall your offspring be. Everybody look here a second. If you know the story of Abraham, God takes him out and says, look up there. Can you count them? Uh-uh. He says, that's how much, that's how big your family's going to be. The moment God's saying this to Abraham, Abraham's kind of old, and how many children does Abraham have at this point in the story? Zip. Zero. And he says, hey, by the way, Abraham, I'm going to give you that many descendants. Abraham has to be like, huh? (laughs) Really? Let Abraham be real. The story goes on that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness, And so God said to him, I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Abram said, sovereign Lord, he asked the question that I would have. How can I know that I'm gonna gain possession of the land that you're gonna do all of this? It's a great question. Look at this. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon, Can we just say it's starting to get weird right now? Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. Stay with me. Let the Bible read in color. He takes these animals, cuts them in two, places one half here, one half here. There's an aisle between them. He did this to all the animals, but the birds, however, he did not cut in half. Verse 11, birds of prey came down, thought it was lunchtime. Abram drove him away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Everybody look here, I'll make sure you're with me. Kind of weird, right? Like we've got animal carcasses split in half. We got this, like what's going on? Like that's weird. Can we just say that's weird? Everybody say out loud, that's weird. One, two, three. And I would agree, unless you lived in their culture. Because to Abram, that wouldn't have been that weird because that's how you and I would have made a covenant with each other. Did you know that? Like that's how we would have made an agreement with each other. If Mike and I here were gonna make a covenant agreement with each other, what we would have done, we'd have got some animals, we'd have cut them in half because they're sacrifice. We'd have placed them opposite each other. There would have been an aisle between the split carcasses. And then we would have walked into the middle of that, met each other halfway, shook hands, and here's what we would have been saying. We were acting out the covenant. We would have said, may I be just like these animals if I don't keep my part of the covenant. It's very graphic. Can we just say that? I don't know if I said this or not, but marriage is a covenant. Aren't you glad we don't still do that? (laughs) I just met with a couple that's going to have a wedding soon. Like, what's your decorations going to be? Well, I think a heifer, a goat, and a ram. I think we'll cut them in half and walk down, right? Aren't you glad that we don't do that? But that's what a covenant is. That literally you would have been coming and saying, may I be just like these animals if I don't keep my part of the covenant. Then Abram falls asleep. That is key. Don't miss that. All of a sudden, this great darkness envelops the place. Don't miss that. The Lord says to him, verse 13, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then he says this, look at this. Don't, this, this is so powerful. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, darkness everywhere, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Everybody look here, I gotta make sense of something. You gotta trust me on this. You read the Old Testament When that verbiage is used, smoking fire, it's always referring to the presence of God. Here's what's happening. God shows up, Abram's asleep, and he passes between the pieces. Who passes between the pieces? God. Abram's asleep. God passes between the pieces, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I'll give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of all of those ites. Here's the deal, and then we're going to fly. Abram says, how do I know this is going to happen? God said, cut some animals. We're going to make a covenant. This is no pinky swear, right? This is serious stuff. God says, I'm gonna multiply your descendants. You're gonna become a nation and through you, everybody's gonna be blessed. But don't miss this. We're gonna make a covenant. And the only one that passed through the covenant picture was who? God. What was God saying? He's saying, I guarantee you, I am binding myself to the promise. I will keep my word. I am a covenant-keeping God. And I am so interested in pursuing mankind. It is so corrupted. It is so disintegrated that I am so committed to pursuing them that I am binding myself to the promise. Guys, the Old Testament is about a God that's chasing and pursuing and hounding And he's not making a covenant with perfect people. Like Abram is no perfect guy. Did you know that? Do you know the story of Abraham? He's like, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you land. Abraham is nowhere near perfect when you read the story of Abraham. One chapter after God makes this covenant, Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands and he sleeps with his wife's servant. Not only that, you know that part of the story. Read his story. Abraham, not once, but twice, tries to sell his wife. Hint, hint, never a good idea. Different sermon, right? He's nowhere near perfect. And he's waiting for God to make good on his promise. And some 13 or 14 years later, His wife says, hey, sweetheart, I know we're really, really seniors, but I'm pregnant. And along comes Isaac, which means laughter, which is what they did when they heard that God was going to give them a child. The story of Abraham and God's covenant with him doesn't stop there. Because if you know the story that that boy grows up and eventually God says to Abraham, he says, listen, I want you to take that son, which son? The son of the promise, Isaac, that son. And I want you to take him to that mountain. Why? Because I want you to sacrifice him. Say what? Like God, what about the covenant? God, this is the promised child. God, what? 
If you read the story, Abraham trusts God, but what had to be going through his mind? What had to be going through his mind? Is this because I haven't kept my part of the covenant? Is God asking me to do this because I haven't kept my part of the covenant? And if you read the story, that just in the nick of time, God says, stop, now I know. You're a man of faith. And he provides a ram. And he says, Abram, this child will not be sacrificed. But there will be one. Isaac grows up, has a family of his own. You ought to read this stuff. It's fascinating. He has twins. He has twins. One of them is really, really hairy. One of them is really, really smooth. It's in there. Check it out. The one who's really, really hairy, he's daddy's boy. He's a hunter. The one who's really, really smooth, he's a mama's boy. He likes to hang out in the tents. His name is Jacob. You know what Jacob means? Deceiver. Wow, that's kind of a cool name. What do you think we ought to name him? Ah, deceiver. But it'll be a fitting name because Jacob, the smooth mama's boy twin, literally deceives his older brother out of his blessing and birthright through a weird twist of fate, so to speak, in God's sovereignty. Jacob goes and he begins to look for a wife and he works 14 years, 14 years to get the wife that he wanted. By the way, in the middle of those 14 years, his uncle deceives him and he ends up marrying not only the wife that he wants, but her sister he didn't want. All of a sudden, you read the story of Jacob, don't miss this makes the Old Testament pop, and you read about a man who wrestles with God. Jacob wrestles with God. Did you hear what I said? Jacob wrestles with God. Can you imagine that? Any of you in the room ever wrestle with your dad, and you know that he was letting you beat him, but he could take it any minute? Jacob wrestles with God, the God who created And after that wrestling match, his name is changed. Do you know what it's changed to? Israel. Do you know what Israel means? One who contends with God. And all of a sudden, you begin to read the Old Testament. This covenant-keeping God is chasing. He's pursuing a people who constantly are contending with him. Jacob has a family of his own, and he has 12 sons. The problem with Jacob was he picked one to be his favorite and he gave him a special coat. The rest of the brothers didn't like that, go figure. And so one day they sell him into slavery. He ends up being in Egypt, long gone and forgotten until these 11 brothers and their families are in the middle of a famine and they need help only to find out this brother 13 years later had risen to be the second most powerful man on the planet. And so the descendants of Abraham, which are now 70, 70 descendants from an old man who had no kids, find themselves in front of a brother they had sold into slavery and said, we need your help. And the book of Genesis ends. The book of Genesis and the covenant to Abraham ends with 70 descendants, but God's people, no land, no nation. All of a sudden, a Pharaoh rises up and didn't know anything about how this all worked. And you find in the book of Exodus that God's people are in slavery. 
And when you read the story, you read this fascinating part of the story about God coming in a burning bush to this obscure Midianite shepherd in Midian. His name is Moses. And he says, I want you to go to the most powerful man on the planet. And I want you to stand in front of Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Exodus 6, why would you want me to do that? Because listen, I remember my covenant with Abraham. And so Moses makes his way in front of the most powerful man on the planet. He looks at him and he says, let my people go. God said so. 10 plagues later, Pharaoh says, get these people out of here. And all of a sudden, these 70 descendants of Abraham are now, after their time in Egypt, so numerous, they're like the sands on the seashore, it says, and the stars in the sky. Moses begins to lead the people through the wilderness to the land that God promised to Abraham. As though he wants to remind them that he is a covenant-keeping God. The God of heaven who is still pursuing, chasing, and promising says this in Exodus 19. He says, Moses, I want you to come up on this mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, and look at this, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, the Israelites, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Everybody look here. God says, Moses, make sure they know. Make sure they know that if you stay with me in this, you are my treasured possession and you will be a kingdom of priests. I'm the king and y'all are priests. What do priests do? Priests represent the king to the world. That's what they do. He said, you'll be a holy nation. And God says, I wanna dwell with you What's the point? Well, God chooses to dwell with his people. Why? So he can demonstrate his character to the entire world. And you read the Old Testament, you begin to all of a sudden make sense of what's going on. Why did they have all these weird ceremonies? Why did God want the Jewish people to do these weird ceremonies? He wanted them never to forget. He rescued them. He provided for them. Why did they have all these weird laws? Anybody notice there's some weird laws in there? Because he wanted them to know he's holier than they ever imagined. And why are they constantly sacrificing? Because God wanted them to know this, that he's patient and loving towards sinners, but he's holy and just in dealing with sin. Listen, listen, listen. We gotta go here got to go here. The fact of the matter is, is that this covenant-keeping God is chasing people who keep contending with him. And Moses no sooner receives the law and comes down that mountain than to realize that those people had turned their back and rebelled. That while he was up on that mountain, those people had gathered all of their jewelry together and they melted their jewelry together and made the form of 
a calf. They said, Moses is gone. We got to make our own God. And so they melted their jewelry together. And all of a sudden, as they melted it together and formed it in the shape of a calf, and they set that calf in front, they said, holy cow, right? They're like, we're going to worship a cow. And it sounds funny to us, right? It wasn't so close to reality. And yet this God keeps chasing. And Moses dies and a guy named Joshua raises up and he literally leads the people into the promised land. Leads the people into the promised land and begins to farm out the land. Which leads to this weird book that if you've never read it, you ought to read it. If you want some entertainment, you ought to read it. It's the book of Judges. Because it is simply a story of God's people rebelling, being punished, and literally repenting and coming back into relationship with this covenant-keeping God, rebelling, God sending a judge to lead them to repentance, and they rebel. God sends a judge to lead them to repentance. And in the book of Judges, you have long-haired guys that are really strong. You have guys that are afraid that end up being fierce warriors. You have left-handed judges plunging their knife into a fat king. You have courageous women. It's all in the book of Judges. And when you get to the end of the book of Judges, it says this, that God's people, don't miss this, decide every man does what seems right in his own eyes. Can you look here a second? Does anything sound familiar? There's not a lot new under the sun, and yet this covenant-keeping God keeps pursuing, keeps chasing, keeps hounding. Eventually, God's people say this. Remember, they're a kingdom of priests, and they say, we want a king, just like all the rest of the nations. God's like, did you forget? I'm your king? God gives them a king and they find the king that you would expect them to find. He's taller than everybody else. He's handsome. He's strong. He's a warrior. His name is Saul. And yet when they go to coronate Saul as king, he's hiding in the luggage. Eventually, Saul becomes the king and at Israel's moment where they needed their king to lead them, As they face the warrior of the Philistines whose name happened to be Goliath, we find Saul hiding with his men. And God decides at that point, I'm going to pick a king. I'm going to go find a king. And he finds a boy watching sheep playing a harp. And he said, David, you're going to be the king of Israel. And with you, I'm going to reaffirm my covenant that I started with Abram, that I made with Israel, and now I'm going to reaffirm it with you in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You got to see this. It says, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, I pointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I've cut off all your enemies before you. Now I'll make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth and I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own no longer to be disturbed. Wicked people won't oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, that's when you die, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now look at this. 
Your offspring is the one who will build a house for me in my name. That's the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father. He'll be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I want you to write this down. God makes a promise to the king of Israel, David, that will lead to the arrival of the king of the world. Now for the next four minutes, you gotta stay with me. Because I wanna take the part of your Bible that makes no sense and I wanna bring it so that it makes sense. God makes this covenant with David. David eventually dies and his son's name is Solomon. Solomon, wisest man other than Jesus to walk the earth, although Solomon had an Achilles heel. His Achilles heel was women. He had tons of wives. And little by little, you see this covenant-keeping God chasing even men who are compromising. Eventually, Solomon turns over the kingdom to his offspring, and they literally take this kingdom, and they split it. And that's your Old Testament. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You have kings of the northern kingdom, kings of the southern kingdom. Listen, none of the kings in the northern kingdom are good. Read it, check me on it. Only a handful in the southern. And as you read your Old Testament, you have these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, guys like that. They're preachers calling God's people and say, remember, God is chasing you. Remember, God loves you. Turn back to God. That's the Old Testament. When you get to the sunset, everybody look here. The sun starts setting on the Old Testament. You have God's people in captivity, two kingdoms, to foreign powers. They've turned their backs on God. At the very end, you have a remnant that's allowed to go back and rebuild the wall and the temple. And then the sun sets on the Old Testament. 400 years between that last page of your Old Testament and the first page of the New. But everybody look here. When the sun rises in the New Testament, when the sun begins to dawn in the New Testament, we are introduced to a baby who happens to be of the seed of the family of Abraham who happens to grow up as a Jewish young man, as an Israelite, who happens to grow up and literally is God with us, Emmanuel. And he perfectly represents God's character to the world. He helps and he heals. He pursues sinners and he preaches sermons. He is the perfect blend of grace and truth. And that man grows up, and one day asked his followers to grab him a donkey. He said, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the day we remember today. In Matthew 21, it says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the full of a donkey. 
The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, this is the son of David, the one the covenant was about. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. But if you know the story, that same crowd who was shouting, Hosanna, here's our king, in a short time is going to be yelling, crucify him, kill him. In a very short time, their shouts of celebration would be shouts of murder. Listen, and just as darkness enveloped the story in the covenant with Abraham, darkness would envelop the planet for a period of three hours. This time, not around animals who were being ripped apart, but around a man who was being ripped apart on a cross. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. And the hound of heaven, the God who pursues and chases, keeps his promise to people who turn their back on him, contend with him, and rebel. The seed of Abraham became a sacrifice. On Good Friday, the light was snuffed out for a moment. And the king was killed. I'm so glad the story doesn't end there, aren't you? But that same man would come back to life. And in coming back to life, the rest of the story tells me that seed that was the sacrifice became our savior. That man coming back to life tells me the darkness of death only opened the door for resurrection life and light. And the story only tells me that the king is alive and he's sitting on his throne because Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that, my friends, is the rest of the story. I'd love for you to bow your heads with me. I'm gonna close. There's no song, no emotional appeal. And I cheated on the time a little bit, so I'm gonna ask when I say amen if we could just make our way out of here so the other crew can make their way in. Before I pray with your heads bowed and your eyes closed or just in a place where you can get alone with your thoughts, it's like we covered so much material today. And yet, I hear people all the time talk about how their Bible they get lost in and I want you to find your way in the long story short. That there is a covenant-keeping God who chases and pursues and that's the story of the Bible and listen, that can be your story. Some of you are sitting here right now and you're like, I think God's given up on me. I think God's irritated with me. I think God is disenfranchised with me. I think God's on to bigger and better things besides me. And yet the story is that he is a pursuing God, a chasing God. And you're sitting here like, but Dan, I've done way too much. I've gone way too far. Where's God? And here's my challenge. Where's God? 
I think if you just turn around and look, he's chasing you and he has been all along. And he is a God that will keep his promise. He will keep his promise. And how I know that is there was a man who hung on a cross in the middle of darkness for three hours and that was God saying, I will hound you to death because I want to have a relationship with you. And if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, the long story short of the Bible is inviting you into that story of a God who has been chasing you all along. God, I am so grateful that the Old Testament lets us know that you are a God who does not change and you're a God who's on the move and you're a God who dares to chase. Thank you for loving us more than we dreamed. Thank you for pursuing us and hounding us. And thank you for being a God that always keeps your promises. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.